Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. And welcome to The Common Bridge. We have a special treat for you today. We're going back to 2021 with our interview with author Thomas Frank. We're going to play it in its entirety because it's just so good. And Rich decided to go back into the archives and pull this out because it's still very, very germane today. So we join Rich and Thomas Frank in conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to The Common Bridge. Happy that you've joined us today. We've got a great guest, Thomas Frank. You're going to hear a terrific story from someone with a really long view on some of the political machinations and the history of the country and where we stand today. We're going to talk about the history of populism, some historical parallels, the state of the two major political parties today, probably touch a little bit on how the reporting industry world is processing all this. And frankly, where does the average citizen fit in? You know, all of us just trying to lead a decent life. Tom is a renowned author. He's a commentator, a columnist, historian and an analyst. We're going to talk a lot about his professional background and some of the recent writings he's had. But first, let's say hello, Tom. Welcome to The Common Bridge. Rich, it's great to be here. Our audience likes to know a little bit about the guests. So maybe tell us a little bit about where were your early days and some of your academic prep, a little bit on your professional work. and Sure thing. So I'm born and raised in Kansas City, but on the uh, Kansas City is in both Missouri and Kansas. I bet I bet some of your listeners know that. And I'm from the mm-hmm. Kansas side. I'm from Johnson County, Kansas. And uh, so I grew up there, went to the public schools and um, went through life, did all the things that you do. Went to college. I went to graduate school, uh, studied history, meant to become a historian. Uh, this was, uh, you know, and I got a PhD in the early 90s. And um, the sort of job market for the humanities was just in a state of collapse at the time. And it's only gotten worse since then. And uh, and so the, the joke is that I always say I went into journalism for the money because because <laughs> 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 it, 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 it paid more than doing what we call adjunct work, you know, which is what I was doing. I ran a magazine that I started called The Baffler Magazine. It was a sort of a literary journal of social commentary. And uh, this was in in my Chicago days. I lived in Chicago, Illinois, which turns out to be a wonderful place from which to view the world and uh, your your bridge motif. So one of my friends when I lived in Chicago was a guy called Studs Terkel, a great man, one of the one of the truly great Americans. And uh, his first book was called Division Street America. And the picture on the cover was of a bridge over the Chicago River on Division Street. I think they've since renamed the bridge Four Studs, but uh, I always think of that because that was his motif as well. Yeah, there's some great newspaper people in Chicago, Mike Royko, Studs, Turkle. Mike Royko, there was a, I never met him, but I, I was a big admirer of his. There's a great man. Yeah, there's some some uh, good Cass, I believe it is, that's writing today, or Kastner. Yeah, I don't live there anymore. Now, I live in Bethesda, Maryland these days, and uh, so I'm, I'm not in Chicago any longer. And um, yeah, and I've written a whole bunch of books, uh, a lot of them about politics, and to the point where I'm really sick of it. 
<laughs> but you know what? There's all, one of the great things. So I'm here, I'm in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So there's the thing about politics is there's this endless uh, bubbling cauldron of, you know, ridiculous stuff going on that you can write about. And that's sort of I, one of the reasons journalists there's a lot of reasons why journalists are drawn to it. But that's one of them. And uh, I always say, you know, I've, I've got to give give up on this and go back to doing what I used to do, which is writing about art and culture and things like that. And uh, but it's it, it's so uh, politics is just so fascinating. And uh, so I'm here in the suburban D.C. now and politics is all anybody talks about in this town. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But like uh, just one last point, everybody, everybody I know in this city, except me, has met Joe Biden. <laughs> uh, well, he's been there a long time. So that that kind of exactly, exactly. He's yeah. Touched, touched a lot of people. And we are going to get into that. And part of it is that the reporting industry, I, I refuse to call it you know, reporters or journalism anymore. But the businesses that churn out things, they want to talk about the inside game. And what we do on the Common Bridge is we try to talk about policy. We try to talk about what's real. Uh, does it matter if there's a filibuster or not a filibuster? Hey, where's the health care bill? What are we doing about uh, order? What are we doing about guns and income inequality and climate change and everything? They want to talk about everything but the real policies. And that's what the Common Bridge is about. We, we talk policy. We talk about solutions. And also our brand promise is this, that every episode, every person should find something they don't like no matter where they are on the political spectrum. And after reading your stuff, I think this is a, a link. Yeah, wow. Did you ever come to the right guy? Yes, we did. So, <laughs> I, can, I can make everyone unhappy, left, right, and center. We got something to piss everyone off. That's exactly. So we're going to we'll have some fun with this. And you have a your background as a writer. I want to make sure our audience hears about that. A lot of people say, hey, this is a liberal writer. Yeah. What you've yeah. been writing about with populism. And I, I really want to focus, though, as we get deeper into this today, on your latest book, The People Know. And that's not The People Know, K-N-O-W. That's The People, comma, know. And also a recent column you wrote for The Guardian that I'm going to guess maybe cost you some friends and perhaps some fans. <laughs> the title, Liberals Want to Blame Right-Wing Misinformation for Our Problems. Now, if you would have stopped there, you would have had half the audience, but then you added the words, get real. Yeah. Well, I, I, just so you know, now, uh, journalists do not write their own headlines. And I, I did not write that headline. But, uh, you know, that captures the spirit of it. <laughs> okay, well, you owe somebody, right. owe somebody a coffee or a beer because that's a good one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we, I do want to talk about the reaction to those recent publications, a little bit how you got to your conclusions, time permitting, maybe a little speculation on what comes next. And I'm sure we're going to talk about things that will educate our audience. And, you know, maybe we'll touch a little bit on policies or maybe just help people understand how to process what we're, we're seeing today. And when we think about the books you've written, one of your early works was called The Conquest of Cool in 1997. And in reading your homepage, you talk about the link between pseudo radicalism of the elites with a rebel culture in a yes. union because it's, it's happening all over again, isn't it? Yes, indeed. It never really stopped. I mean, it, it comes and goes, you know, uh, and we're in it. We're in another sort of a hot moment for it. So the conquest of cool was about 
something that fascinated me. This is the 1990s. I was writing a lot about rock music at the time. I was friends with a lot of musicians. And uh, one of the sort of things that we would complain about was how commercial culture was was really interested in um in in what we were doing and how they were always trying to sort of grab it and take it away from us and i decided to write about the history of that and the great moment for youth culture in america of course is the 1960s and i decided to study how the advertising industry reacted to the counterculture in the 1960s oh, nice. i know it's it's kind of a weird question right and but once you start digging it's fascinating the advertising industry was absolutely in love with the counterculture and the idea of like rebellious youth of young people engaged in some kind of uprising they were really 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 into this. Uh, now, this is not to say the advertising industry was like part of the new left or something like that, but they very quickly sort of appropriated the symbols and the sounds of the counterculture for reasons of their own. And I thought it was important to try to understand those reasons. And here we are. It's all happening all over again. <laughs> Indeed it is. And I want to skip forward. Uh, you wrote another book. We just don't have time to go into all of those, the the one market under God in 2000 about the idiocies on uh, Wall Street. Yeah, the great the great bull market of the, exactly. of the, I, the late I was, 90s. I was running a, a microcap public company at that time, and you and I could probably swap a few stories. But things really got real for you in 2004. You authored a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? Interestingly, you said that was your first foray into politics and I love the question is, why do so many decent average people support politics that does them such obvious harm? Uh, yeah. Again, it's a great it's a great question. Right. So that's the setup is that question. And I, I had been you know, thinking about that for a long time, because I'm a historically minded person. And when you study American history or the way it used to, they used to teach American history. One of the important strains in it is the rise of reform. Uh, you know, of the uh, organized labor, these various protest movements, big strikes in the 19th century. And then you have the progressive movement. And then, well, then you have populism and you have the progressive movement. Then you have the New Deal and you achieve the middle class society. And so I'm, you know, coming up in the 80s and 90s and everything is going in reverse. And we're taking the middle class society apart and the very people that built it, you know, that did all these great things in our past. Uh, or their descendants anyway, are the ones who are doing it. And so I'm, I was puzzled by that in a historical sense. But then there was also a personal element to it uh, for me, because I, as I said, I grew up in Kansas, went to the public schools of that state. And in the um, late 90s, Kansas got embroiled in a huge battle over the theory of evolution. And, and you know, the, this culture war over the theory of evolution, and I was at the time living in Chicago, and I just couldn't believe it. This was embarrassing to me, and, you know, uh, and I couldn't imagine that my home state had done this, had gone the, in this direction and had picked this weird culture war fight. And so I decided I would get to the bottom of it. And this was my investigation of it and how you had a um, conservative movement that was embracing such you know, these culture war battles that just seem so zany. But to look into it, it's like I wanted to interview the leaders. I wanted to see how they made their case and why they were successful. And it was a fascinating story. It is absolutely fascinating. Now, one thing I should tell people, you know, everybody sees the title and they assume that I'm 
just making fun of these people. No. I do have a lot of fun with them. That is true. No, I do have I do have some fun with with uh, you know the first part of it is me you know sort of uh, boggled at how strange everything is. But ultimately, I tried really hard to see eye to eye with these people, and I think I kind of succeeded. And uh, you know these are these are the people I grew up with. I don't dislike them. Uh, I'm not you know, super judgmental towards them. I am fascinated by the historical. I think it's a you know political mistake. I'm against their politics and I think they're pushing in the wrong direction. But these are ultimately at the end of the day, a lot of these are good people. That was an important part of the book. No one remembers that part anymore. <laughs> you know, I've traveled extensively through the country, hitchhiking when I was younger in, you know, in business and for pleasure. And we're a country filled with compassionate and generous, good people. At all social strata, coming you know from all races, all whether they got here on the Mayflower or they came last week, we're just, it's a lot of good people. But you know we've got this political overlay that is really puzzling. But I think the, that book in uh, in '04 uh, probably got you off the George W. Bush Christmas card list. I'm guessing because <laughs> the conservatives punked the nation, and and then to make sure he didn't put you back on that you wrote the wrecking crew in the wrecking crew is a very washington dc book it's about uh, how these conservative administrations uh reagan and bush mainly how they um manage the machinery of government and the funny thing about that book is uh, i feel like uh donald trump and company used it as a as a shop manual you know <laughs> Like how to how to how to run the government, you know. Hey, here's a book all about that. Let's let's use this. There's a case to be made for that, and then things are going pretty well. I think the left wing of America probably felt pretty comfortable with you, and probably looking forward to getting your next book in 2016. And then you wrote something called "Listen Liberal," and I, I think some folks have uh, opined maybe it should have been "Listen Liberal" with an exclamation point. Yeah, and, and you. Pose the question, why has American liberalism been so unsuccessful at halting the deterioration of the middle class? And how did they get out of touch with what used to be the base? So I was raised in a blue collar town and my public education was paid for uh, in large part by two Ford plants. And there was a middle class standard. Of where, did, where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Wayne, Michigan which okay. is in Wayne County, straight down Michigan Avenue from the city of Detroit, 15 miles from the old Tiger Stadium. Yeah. Solidly blue collar. Yes. Well, that's who we were. I just saw a statistic the other day. It was in a podcast I was listening to about professional basketball. And one of the players that they were talking about had grown up in Flint in mm -hmm. the 70s. And they said that at the time, the median income in Flint was higher than it was in San Francisco. U.S. auto companies had a dominant worldwide market share, kind of a post-war 1945. America had the only factories on the planet that were modern and not destroyed. And yeah. consumers had money in their pockets because they were working during the war, but things were rationed. They couldn't spend it. So from you know 1945, really until around 1980, when the Japanese car companies started landing, things were really, really good. But one of the things that changed after that period is that the rank and file of the union workers became increasingly more conservative and more Republican while their union leadership remained Democratic. Yep. And that was a, a, a split. And as we talk about the current political situation, many of my friends that are in blue collar world today, my best friends in the world, guys I've known my entire life, they were in early for Trump. 
Mm. They had said, you know, to your point about why were American liberals not successful in halting the decline of the middle class? And a lot of them reached the point, they were fed up. They were willing to try anything because they just felt like they were being left behind. That is absolutely right. So the point that I made in Listen Liberal was was really straightforward. It's that and it, and it was easy to make which is that the, it was at the Democratic Party, it pays lip service to unions and to, you know, and it courts union leaders from time to time. But what it really cares about is a white collar professional elite of this country. That's who they really care about. And they say this, if you do the research, which I did, and you just, you know, dig around in their magazines and their you know publications and read the speeches of Bill Clinton, that kind of thing. They're very open about this. That is who they care about. Bill Clinton was very fond of these trade agreements that deindustrialized, you know, big parts of America, including, you know, the part of America where I grew up, you know, the Midwest, well, where you grew up as well. And uh, they knew that was going to happen, but they didn't care. Anyhow, the Democratic Party is no longer what we think it, it, it is not what we think it is. To, to punctuate that, Hillary Clinton, when they were trying to drive through their health care bill, said, I can't be concerned with every undercapitalized business in America. And with all of the recovery we're looking at right now, getting past the pandemic, hopefully, I'm not hearing anything about the opportunity to start a business, the, to, yeah. to be independent. It's all about you need a big check from a big place. I think that really leads me to your current book, The People Know, and again, that's The People, comma, N-O, came out in 2020. And fair warning for our listeners, the people who think that politics is binary or that the conditions of today is something we just arrived at in the moment, you probably want to slow down this podcast. You've all know my view that the two major political parties are dysfunctional. They are very good at fighting each other, terrible at actually addressing the issues of the day, and they're being fueled by entertainment instead of news. And Tom, you really dove into this. And I, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed the book drawing the historical parallels with other periods of populism. You drew parallels from the 1890s, 1950, 2016, maybe a little bit about the 1970s. Has the mission been lost or bolstered? Well, uh, great question, Rich. The, uh, it's a big question, though. So first, it, it starts with the fact that, so as we mentioned earlier, I'm from Kansas, and Kansas has... Uh, only a couple of things in its history to be really proud of. And one of them is that it's the place where they invented the word populism. Oh. And also the, the political party was, uh, it was a third party movement. It was a sort of a left-wing farmer labor movement in the 1890s. And the word, uh, you know, its formal name was the People's Party, but the nickname populist was invented by some guys in Kansas, actually uh, riding on a train between Kansas City and Topeka one day. And uh, uh, populism became identified with the state of Kansas. And whenever somebody in those days wanted to make fun of Kansas or make fun of populism, they would make fun of people from Kansas, that kind of thing. Uh, people from Kansas were considered like crazy radicals, <laughs> you know, the opposite of what they're considered today. So that word means something very definite for me. And for a lot of people from Kansas, they still remember what that was. They know they know what that movement was. And when that word started getting used in the last couple of years as a synonym for racist demagogue, which you hear all the time now, I mean, that's the only way it's used 
now, uh, that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I decided I would, you know, because I, it wasn't that long ago that people used it to mean something very different. They meant someone on the left who is really focused on economic issues. Barack Obama, I found in my research, used the word that way to describe himself. Uh, Jimmy Carter described himself that way. I don't think either of them was really being very accurate when they did that, but they they did use the word that way. And then all of a sudden now the, the word has changed. And so I decided to do a history of how the of what the word originally meant and how it changed. And going back, starting with the 1890s and the original populist movement, what I discovered is that there is an important populist theme in American life that comes straight out of the populist movement. If you allow that these are the guys who who made up the word and they have a right to define it, uh, and what they meant by it is a transracial movement of working class people focused on economic issues. That's what the original populists were. They were pretty advanced for their time, even though they were not highly educated people. They were ordinary Americans. It was a very, very, very working class movement. I mean, they said this all the time. This is a movement of ordinary people. They tended to be suspicious, not of ideas, but suspicious of orthodoxy, of the people in charge of American life and in charge of American intellectual life, meaning university professors, economists, that kind of thing. The book talks about the expert class or the learning class, and and, and that group having a, a disdain for the populace who would, might be more farmers, factory workers, yes. and the like. And this is a constant. This goes right all through the history of this movement. And also, the other thing that I was struck with is that the populace in 1890, they were condemned as, quote, threatening democracy because they were suspicious of this expert class, and that all of the elements that aligned against them, at that time, the Republican Party for McKinley. Yeah the Wall Street banks, the clergy. Yeah. They're all kind of closed ranks to keep, a, I don't know, an orthodoxy and not... Yes. It's a, it's a fascinating story. What happened was they, uh, they were indeed regarded as a threat to democracy because they were too democratic. Democracy meant the people who owned America got to determine what America was. And the populists, they were regarded as like the French Revolution. Political cartoons from the period would often depict populism wearing one of those red caps. Oh, yeah. Yes. Revolution, you know, and they were going to set up a guillotine in Wall Street or something like that. And they were regarded as the problem with populism is it was too democratic. It was anarchy. It was some this is before communism. So they couldn't call them that. So they the, the images all came from the French Revolution. Well, that was like their version of Occupy Wall Street, except with a guillotine. Well, it never <laughs> it never happened. It was just an image, you know, but the populists did hate Wall Street banks. They talked about it all the time. Anyhow, so the. And this came to fascinate me even more than populism itself. So the populist movement, the populist tradition, I should say, in American life, you can trace that from the 1890s through the 1930s, through the 1970s, right up to someone like Bernie Sanders, who is very much in that tradition. Yeah. But what really fascinated me were the people who hated populism. Historians generally, they understand you know, the populist tradition in American life, but this anti-populist tradition, this is something that no one has written about before. The people who came together against populism in the 1890s are very, very similar to a phenomenon of today that we'll talk about in a second. And I'm sure once I start describing what happened, your listeners will know immediately what I'm talking about. But so it's 1896. 
Populism is on the rise. It's been coming now for six years. And all of a sudden, one of the two major parties, the Democratic Party, appears to have been captured by populism. They nominate this guy, William Jennings Bryan, who talks like a populist. He's not really all there with the populists on the issues, but he's with them on one big issue, which is has to do with the currency. He wanted a, a kind of currency reform uh, to get us off the gold standard. And the sort of establishment of America reacted with a kind of hysteria. They went crazy and they started denouncing this guy, William Jennings Bryan, and what they called populism in the most outrageous way, calling populists the worst names they could come up with, trying to psychoanalyze them. And so mm -hmm. it was a coming together of the, the American elite. Like you said earlier, it was the wealthy, of course, the Republican Party and the Wall Street money, the millionaires of the time, you know, the Vanderbilts and the Astors and the Carnegies, these kind of people coming together with. America's most educated elite, the presidents of universities, uh, the leading economists of the time. There was a the, the leading academic of the time was a man called William Graham Sumner. He was at Yale University, wrote a whole series of articles denouncing populism. Psychologists who would psychoanalyze. <laughs> this is in the very early days of psychology, so they didn't really know what they were talking about, but they tried to understand populism as a form of pathology, as, as a form of mental illness. Society preachers came together, and they, society preachers were a big deal in the 1890s, came together against denouncing populism from the pulpit. And of course, the most important element was the press. The press, which is by and large at that time, is owned by wealthy individuals who identify with the business elite, and they can't believe what they're seeing. They pick up their pencils and they just, they write the most incredible, uh, bloodthirsty attacks on populism in the press, in the, you know, in the American newspapers. And so I have a good time in the book quoting from these New York, you know, newspaper editorials denouncing populism oh. in the most extreme terms. As I'm reading the book, I found it's like, you know, if you took the date off of it, yeah. I think I saw this over the last four years. So that's the flash of recognition that goes off for me when I'm writing this book. I'm like, wait a second. You know, this is I've seen this before. You know, this is happening right now. And it's the same in a lot of ways, a very similar phenomenon, a coming together of the elite. But what I discovered is that this has happened repeatedly in our history. And it happened again in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt was president. So Roosevelt got elected in 1932 with this overwhelming landslide. And at the time, people didn't really know what to expect from Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he was clearly a, a liberal. Uh, he clearly, you know, he had this idea called the New Deal, but we didn't really know what that entailed. And uh, uh, people were really glad to get, uh, you know, a new administration in there. Uh, you know, the country in 1932 was in the depths of despair. It was the worst year of the Depression. You know, get that guy Hoover out, get this new guy in and let's see what he can do. And by 1936, everybody knew what the New Deal was. <laughs> it was these, right. he, he took us off the gold standard, you know, which the original populists wanted him wanted us to do. He had all of these federal farms programs. He had all of these federal work programs like the WPA hiring unemployed people, competing with private industry, jacking up wages by hiring uh, unemployed people. In fact, you had the minimum wage was a Roosevelt innovation. He had the, you know, the social security, the old age uh, retirement security. This was shocking and scary to a lot of people. And he was encouraging people to join 
labor unions mm-hmm. and labor organizing took off in the 1930s. You're from Michigan. You know, that's part of the story. Very proud of that that history in Michigan. And they fought hard for what we enjoy today. You, you look at the, the big sit down strike in Flint in mm-hmm. 37. I mean, that was momentous. Anyhow, this is all happening under Roosevelt. And in 1936, you have the same kind of thing. The business community comes together with leading academics, high society people to denounce Roosevelt. And of course, the, again, the, the big part of the burden is, is borne by the newspaper industry, as in 1896, are still owned by very wealthy people who identify with business, by and large. I'm thinking of the owner of the Chicago Tribune, a man called Colonel McCormick, who is, uh, again, I had a lot of fun quoting from his editorials, which I believe a lot of them he wrote himself and which were just he would print them on page one of the Chicago Tribune. These incredible denunciations of Roosevelt. But they uh, had you know a couple innovations in the 30s. They had radio. So they were able to blanket the country with radio denunciations of Roosevelt. But it's the same thing. It's this coming together of elite groups to suppress this man who is very much in the populist tradition. That time it didn't work because this kind I mean, for a lot of reasons, they come together and denounce Roosevelt and the New Deal as being crazy and saying it empowers ordinary people. It's the triumph of the unfit over society's rightful rulers. Well, this sort of anti-democratic language does not work in 1936. It did work in 1896, and they were, the Republicans were able to defeat populism in, in 1896 to really crush it. But by 1936, that kind of language doesn't work anymore. You can't just tell Americans they need to get back in line and they need to, you know, sort of bow down to their betters. You know, and that's, so that, that, that stuff doesn't work anymore. But the anti-populist tradition is alive and well. And here's the funny thing. It's still going on. As I was writing this book, I'm looking around me and there's all of these articles in prestigious American magazines saying that the problem with America is too much democracy, that people who aren't educated think they should have a say in our national affairs. and They think they know better than experts and they need to get back in line. And they even start using the word populism in 2016 to describe both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump using it, I think, wrongly. They used it wrongly in these other two occasions. Also, this word is often abused. It's a way for society's elites to say what they dislike about democracy. And look, at the at the risk of someone going, oh, this is a, a Trump support. It's, it's not. I, I've consistently said about Donald Trump, uh, not qualified to be the president of the United States, not interested in learning the job and massive personal issues. Yeah. Maybe we'll do two episodes. We'll just keep rolling here. Uh, <laughs> that, that, uh, because some of the, the, I think the Democrats made the situation worse. And, and I know that uh, many of people that would be considered populists, they rejected out of hand the establishment of both parties. And now I look today and I say, you know, we've got Wall Street, elected Democrats, big tech, all aligning, saying, hey, you know what, not only are we going to control things, but we're going to pick who gets to talk. Yeah. Isn't that that's a scary aspect of this? Yeah. And I read uh, in, in the uh, book, the H.R. one bill that is a horrible bill for a lot of reasons. But they talk about, well, these social media platforms are universal. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They, they can't be universal if you can kick people off. That's right. That's the famous common carrier rule. But we don't need to get into the details of that. But you're, you're exactly right. If it's if it's like the phone system, I mean, they can't 
eavesdrop on your phone call and cut you off if they don't like what you say. (laughs) That's not how it works. So if you're going to make the system universal, then it has to be universal. It has to pretty much be open to everyone. There's all sorts of calls out there now. We're in like year four of constant state of hysteria. Yes. In some ways, I include myself in that. I was very concerned when Donald Trump got elected. I also, to some degree, you know, I warned about this. This is what Listen Liberal, my, my book, which came out in 2016 was about the Democrats' vulnerability to exactly this kind of attack. I took a a couple victory laps when he got elected, but it was also, look, I have a family. I love this country. I don't want a man like that sitting in the uh, in the oval office it was it was it was very frightening to me but what you just said turned out to be exactly the case this man had no business being president was not really interested in the job never seemed to learn and had many opportunities to step up and show what he could do and didn't didn't take them i mean the most obvious one being covid this country was crying out for leadership and this guy doesn't deliver well, well he, he literally thought it was a reality show for himself yeah they actually if, if he would have had advisors that he listened to, yeah, it basically had three things. Look, we're going to fight this thing on three fronts. Number one, we're going to get a vaccine out, which, by the we way, did they do did. That. Yes. Number two, yeah. we're going to make sure that the hospitals are supplied with everything they need, PPE and equipment and beds, which they did. And then the third leg is we're going to make sure people who have been harmed by this pandemic or the reaction of the pandemic through no fault of their own, they're not going to lose their house or their credit rating which they did, but instead of concentrating on any crisis management is where are we, what are we doing, how are we measuring it, how are we moving through, but he just displayed that he thought it was about him. Yeah, you think of, we were talking about Roosevelt a second ago, you think about Roosevelt during World War II being reassuring, going on the radio, you know, talking us through this disaster, you know, Pearl Harbor, talking us through the depression, letting us know what he was doing, that it was going to be okay. And Trump, it was beyond him. And you're right that they did a lot of the right thing. They handled the economic side of it fairly well. I was a little surprised by that. But no, he was just, his leadership was just so astonishingly poor. I think vacuums the word you're looking <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah. Uh, just, just, it just wasn't there. And I've got this view that the nomination of Donald Trump was the end of the establishment of the Republican Party. The election of Donald Trump should have been the end of the establishment of the Democratic Party. Did the establishment of the Democratic Party fight off Bernie Sanders, who I think is as close to a populist as you could get, to survive? Or is there another wave coming? And did the anti-populist forces of history, when you studied them, did they play the race and class divisions the way we're seeing those splits today? Oh, wow. So many good questions there, Rich. The last one first, the race and class divisions. Oh, my God, yes. But not the way that it's being done today. I mean, very much the opposite. So they played on those divisions in a sort of racist way. So one of the very interesting things about populism, and historians are fascinated by this, is that it was strong in three regions of America, the far west, which didn't have a lot of people in it, the Great Plains area, you know, Kansas, Dakotas, Nebraska, Texas, and then in the south. These are all areas with a lot of farmers. 
And populism was very strong in the South. The South at the time was, you know, very poor. Everyone was a farmer, but there was a very strong ruling elite who were identified at the time. This is a white ruling elite planter class who were identified with the Democratic Party at the time. They called themselves Bourbon Democrats. And populism went into the South and... Um, actually grew up in the South and said, this is our appeal to voters of the South. This is in the 1890s now. And in a lot of Southern states, blacks could still vote. They hadn't been disenfranchised yet. None of that stuff had happened yet. I mean, it had happened a little bit in some of the states, but not in all of them. And so populism went into these Southern states and said, Southern politics at the time was dominated by racist appeals to white people. It was these, this idea they called white solidarity, the idea that the only thing that mattered was the color of your skin. And so white people had to stick together as a race, show solidarity as a race. Poor white farmers voting for the party that was controlled by the people who owned the South. That's white solidarity. Populism went into the South and said, no, your interests as a farmer are more important than your interests as a white person. And on that basis, we're going to reach out to black voters whose interests are the same as white farmers and reach out to them and try to build a coalition based on class interests rather than on racial interests. And this was absolutely shocking, <laughs> as you might imagine. This was, um, you know, this challenged the Southern system at its very heart. And it, things like this had happened before in the South, and there was a kind of a constant threat beneath the surface that poor whites and poor blacks might get together and realize their common interests. Yeah, our ancestral history, oh, you're a person of this color or you're a person of this heritage. You, you, you have to think this way. We're going to put you in this box with everyone else and don't talk to these other guys. And I look at that and go, okay, well, who wants us to not talk to folks yeah. like that? We all agree that our government today is not doing a very good job. And frankly, everybody's more than concerned about the surrendering of privacy yeah. and very concerned about the amount of power that the you know, big tech monopolies wield. Yeah. So let me finish this story, and then I'll come to that. Basically, the Southern elite came down on populism like a ton of bricks with all kinds of racist appeals. They basically defeated them everywhere except in North Carolina. That was the only Southern state where the populists won. Mm -hmm. And they made an alliance with the Republican Party, which was a small party. That was a party that black voters tended to be loyal to. And they came together and they, they won. And they elected a governor, sent people to Congress, U.S. senator, et cetera, et cetera, took over the state legislature, all that stuff. And they did a lot of the things that populists do. They allowed local home rule in cities around North Carolina, which meant that suddenly in areas where blacks were in the majority, they were electing city governments and stuff like that. And uh, this was just intolerable. And the local elite came at them in the year 1898 with something they called and this is famous. You know, this is all over the sort of well, actually, it's famous, but it's something people don't like to talk about because it's very uncomfortable what happened next. It was called the white supremacy campaign. They actually called it that, though. Yeah, I know. The white supremacy campaign. And they brought in all of these racist speakers from all around the South. They built a militia, uh, a racist militia. They were called the Red Shirts. Yeah, oh, no. went around. I know it's like the brown shirts, right? But they were called the Red Shirts. They went around, 
you know, intimidating voters, shooting voters, uh, frightening people. And then a, a campaign of hysteria, in this case, racist hysteria uh, uh, directed against populism and against the Republicans. And they did it. They won. This is in 1898. And they take control of the state legislature and they do two things immediately. The first one is they disenfranchise black voters and a lot of poor whites. People have studied, you know, where did, this is the beginning of Jim Crow. And so people ask, you know, where did Jim Crow come from? You know, it didn't just develop, you know, it wasn't, hasn't been around forever. It was developed deliberately to make sure that populism never happened again. Separate the races. And make sure they are not friends. Make sure that they don't get back together and try this again. And this is a, a, I mean, I'm I'm generalizing and in some southern states, it happened before populism in some states after populism. But in a bunch of them, they did this deliberately to stop populism and they took the vote away from black voters all over the South. And it's, it's a terrible story. And in North Carolina, it actually ended in the in a really bloody manner, where in one of the cities there in Wilmington, North Carolina, the uh, local Democrats armed themselves and marched into the city and they had a Republican mayor and they chased him out of office. They had a populist police chief. They chased him out of town. They went through the black part of town shooting and burning. They burnt down. There was a black newspaper in the town. They burnt it, killed a bunch of people, and they took over the government of this town. They, had, they This town had an, it's a city actually, had an elected government and they overthrew it. And it's apparently the only time there's been a successful military coup in America since the Civil War. It's the craziest story. I didn't even know this story until I started writing I, I, the book. I didn't know it until I read the book. Uh, and, and, never and it's, heard of it. it's again, it's it's an uncomfortable story and people don't don't like to talk about it, but the you can find the research on it. It's out there if you dig. Uh, and it's a, an incredible tale. Anyhow, that's what happened to populism. It's ironic that the word that these guys invented to describe themselves populist, that this word later became they flipped the meaning of it and made it a synonym for racism. Just two other quick things that when I, I hear you going through that and I can't help but going back to the 2016 election and, and it's aftermath. And, and we agree that we ended up uh, with a bad president. The thing that struck me is that following the 2016 election, there was like a doubling down. This is the, the party that said, uh, you know, a certain part of your voters are deplorable. Yeah. They're irredeemable. They're not worth appealing to. And following the election, instead of saying, hey, we missed something, we need to go to Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and find it. We, we, we missed something. There was like almost like a doubling down of, well, wait a minute. They really proved how dumb yeah. they are and how misinformed and how emotional because it wasn't a problem with we, the Democrats. It was a problem with you, the voters, aren't good enough or smart enough to vote and for us. People said that. They said exactly what you just described, that you are not exaggerating. There's a, a whole chapter of the people know it's the last chapter of the book is filled with quotations from leading pundits and thinkers saying exactly that, uh, that the problem is not that the Democrats failed the people. It's that the people failed the Democrats which is like, whoa, you know, that's that is so upside down. I just want to take a step back. Hillary Clinton made the famous <clears throat> or the notorious deplorables remark and right away figured out that she'd put her foot in it, that this is not something that you that a politician who's counting on 
you know, in a democracy, this is not something that a politician should say. And she tried to take it back. You remember, she tried to get out of it and apologize for it. What's fascinating to me is that so many of the thinkers and supporters of the Democratic Party were like, no, that was exactly right. It was a prepared remark. She did it twice. When you say double down on it, I think they've done considerably more than that. It's it's like uh, uh, people want to identify you know, not just to say that Donald Trump was a bad president, which I think he was, but that people who voted for him were sinful. They were depraved in some way for having done that. And, you know, I think a lot of them probably are bad people. That's There's 70 million of them. But I know personally people who voted for him. I know they're not bad people. They may have been deceived. They voted for a guy who was a lousy president. I didn't vote that way. But to attack the people for making a wrong decision, I think is is such a strange turn. And yet, like you say, doubling down on it, the Democrats then proceeded to invent all sorts of excuses for why they lost in 2016, mm-hmm. rather than look this thing in the face and say, you know, look, we lost Wisconsin. That one really blew my mind because I don't know if you've ever been to Wisconsin. Many times. Like, yeah. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. This is a pretty liberal state. This is a state with a very liberal history. This is the home of the La Follette family, uh, et cetera. Uh, Michigan, you know, that one hurt. Pennsylvania, all of these things. Iowa, this astonishing astonished me that this happened. It was obviously a wake up call to the Democratic Party. Look, you know, read, listen, liberal, see where you've gone wrong. How have you lost the confidence of these people that used to be your rank and file, used to be your core support? This was your base. This was the base of the party. And you've lost them. If I could pile on to a little bit of of what you're saying that, and I will tell you this, in 2016, I didn't vote for either of them. I wrote myself in because I thought they'd vote for (laughs) the terrible president. Um, And I, I lost, by the way, um, <laughs> that the number of people that voted for Donald Trump, they thought that this, you know, what more could go wrong? You know, a big middle finger, all those reports that, that you cite about how they doubled down on insulting the very voters. And then I kind of look at this today where we have this uh, speech suppression yeah. and a misinformation campaign coming out around what's in voting bills and the like. I think that's just the next step. It's closely related because if you're, by the way, and I want to exempt Joe Biden from everything that I'm about to say, and and exe- there's a bunch of Democrats who I really like and who uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders. I, I mean, I don't know about Biden. Uh, jury is still out on him. I mean, he's brand new as president. But, uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of Democrats. Who's the fresh face of politics? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fresh face, 78 year old. Yeah. Anyhow, but if you're a party and you, you you know, you've just been handed this uh, this sort of shocking defeat. Remember, every pollster said that Hillary was going to win. The New York Times said it was 95 percent. You remember all this. Oh, sure. And so then the unthinkable happens. And if you are determined to not look in the mirror and not do a a postmortem and not figure out where you went wrong, but instead you're going to, you know, do these other things. You're going to blame Russia. You're going to you're going to blame all sorts of external actors. You and I could probably go on for hours about that because I I thought if the Democrat and I said it over and over again, I said if the Democrats would have just acted like adults and played it straight, people would have seen how bad Trump was. And the fact that they didn't just gave Trump cover. And that's all it did. You know, and when you come out like the the non whistleblower, there is no whistleblower. None exists. And if you you look at the document that Adam Schiff brought forward, uh, it is overly lawyered. 
Okay. It didn't come from some strange guy that thought he saw a problem, but the, you know, the Russia piece. Well, I mean, some of it was true. I mean, the Russians did buy ads on Facebook, right? You know, we know that, but, and the ads are actually kind of interesting if you want to look at them, but to blame the entire election on, on that is, is ridiculous. And, uh, and, you know, uh, they never did show that Trump was a, you know, a Russian agent or whatever the hell it was that they were trying to, you know, the collusion, they had every resource available. I'll, I'll tell you something. I never wrote about that all those years uh, when that was the only news story. <laughs> I never wrote about it. I never, you know, it just was not my thing. And I, I was like, you know, this doesn't just this doesn't ring true to me. It, it feels like someone trying to invent an excuse. When I watched that, I said, well, you know, you know, with the amount of money, the time, the access, including breach of client attorney privilege, being able to give out non-prosecution agreements, there's something there. They're going to find it. Yeah. I, I thought the premise was a little weird. Like, here's a guy who's in his 70s, been in the public eye most of his adult life, wants to become president and says, yeah, Russia's the way to go. I mean, it's okay. I said, you know, I guess that I mean, I'm like, it could happen. It could happen. Turns out it didn't happen. I remember being relieved when Mueller, you know, when his report came out <laughs> and, and saying, oh, thank goodness, the president is not a, a Russian agent. This that was a bad right. day for a lot. A no, but I, I was really happy. That was like, that's that's good news. <laughs> you know, all these dire reports uh, on TV, you know, that were very scary. And all of a sudden it turns out it's not true. And it's funny because I, I've learned since then that the, I think I'm the only one in America that reacted that way. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, uh, and I, look, I'm nerdy enough. Watched C-SPAN and what the what was done with the FISA court and what the Inspector Horowitz's report was in it. And I'm not, I kid you not, when they caught, you know, so so Comey, Sally Yates, Rod Rosenstein asked under oath at Senate Intelligence Committee, if you knew now, then what you knew now, would you have signed those FISA warrants? All of them answered no. No one asked the follow-up question, well, what did you know today that you didn't know now, then? Because the answer is just that we got exposed. <laughs> so this is the, and, yeah. and the reason they said that it wasn't politically motiva- motivated, and I kid you not, was that the IG following his first report, they pulled 25 random cases of uh, appeals to the FISA court, and most of them the FBI had lied on. And <laughs> so the answer was, you see, we do yeah. this to everybody. We weren't just going after. Oh, Trump. wow. Yeah. I, I'm not a, a big Russiagate expert. One of the, I learned years ago, I, I wrote about Iran-Contra. And I remember interviewing this guy who was a great expert on Iran-Contra. This is in The Wrecking Crew. I got really interested in Iran-Contra for reasons that don't really matter anymore. But uh, I at one point, I, I uh, you know, I was talking to this guy and the conversation ballooned and went on much longer. And and I said, uh, you know, this is really interesting. And he said, yeah, but you should stay away from it. People come into this. People get interested in Iran-Contra and they start studying it and they they never come out again. You know, <laughs> they go into the maze and they never come out again because they get drawn into it, you know, and they think it's so fascinating. And so I try to stay away from things like that. But the stuff about censorship, this is what's happening now. And it is real. This is you know, when I first started looking into this, I, I said, this can't be true. You know, I'm a liberal. I've been a liberal for a long time. Liberals believe in free speech. Liberals believe in protecting the speech, even of viewpoints they hate, because that's 
we know that's the principle. That's how uh, that's how the conversation works in America. You every viewpoint is is allowed its say, and then the public gets to choose from amongst you know the, this wide uh, array of choices. And we also know that if we were to, I mean, this is you know this seemed obvious to me that if you start shutting down, if you start censoring people or start shutting down certain viewpoints, they're going to come after you liberal. They're going to come after people like me. I, I know this. My views are extremely unpopular in this country. And th- there's a long history of whenever there's been a censorship regime in this country, and it's happened a couple of times. It's always people on the left who are the target during World War One. You know, remember the hysteria I was talking about with populism again in the McCarthy era. You know, it's, it's always it's always people like me who are on the receiving end of these things. So that's not something that that we that, that we ever fool around with. And then I look, I, I start reading, you know, in the you know New York Times is calling for Joe Biden to appoint. What do they call it? A reality czar? Exactly. You know, and, I mean, it sounds it sounds Orwellian. It's college speech codes elevated to a federal level. There is one difference now between. Speech between censorship regimes in the past, and that is that they have the tool to do it, which right. never existed before, and that's social media. And they can see the power that social media has, and it's scary. It bothers me. I mean, I think these are these companies are monopolies and need to be broken up or regulated as monopolies. But the Democrats, uh, uh, a lot of Democrats, not all of them, of course, but a lot of Democrats uh, say the opposite. We want these companies to start pushing the mute button right. on our political opponents. And they're they're open about this. This is not a secret. This is really happening. And they're trying to convince their base that it's a good thing. And my argument to that is, okay, if we give someone the power to mute, what if we elect another Donald Trump? Now he's got the power. Yeah. To mute. That, not, uh, not, uh, yes. Yeah. That's a, that is a very good concern. That is a very worthwhile yeah. concern. And Tom, as a historian, there's, there's a, there, we had a, a man on, uh, Professor Dan Crane, who's at the University of Michigan Law School. His specialty is antitrust. And mm-hmm. what got me really interested in having him on the show is that he wrote a number of papers about the rise of fascism when there's monopolies. And he goes back to pre-World War II Germany, mm-hmm. and he says, okay, Germany had two airplane companies, two pharma companies. Hitler just compromised those, controlled the entire economy. Fast forward, here we are, 2021. We've got Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Microsoft. It is terrifying. And uh, and look, part of populism was uh, the uh, fear and hatred of monopolies is very deep in the pop. That's one of the things they were very concerned with in the 1890s. Franklin Roosevelt was, a you know, had a strong antitrust uh, enforcement regime. Democrats used to believe in that. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the last president to actually enforce antitrust law in this country. Uh, since Reagan, though, Democrats get, have Republicans and Democrats agreed to not enforce it any longer. And so you have these companies with the most with the kind of power that John D. Rockefeller could only dream of, uh, a kind of power that we don't it boggles the mind, the sort of power that that uh, that Google and Facebook, et cetera, have over our lives. Amazon. It's it's extraordinary. And wasn't, uh, it, Reagan that, wasn't it Reagan that broke up AT&T into the baby bells and also the, the consent decree on IBM? 
Uh, uh, is that, okay, so it sounds that like Reagan, uh, that Reagan it, it, Reagan that, the AT&T thing, I believe, might have happened then. But Reagan was the one that brought in the, the sort of new uh, thinking about antitrust, where it's all about consumer prices. And, yes, uh, yes. And so you have this wave of consolidation. And so it's it's extraordinary to me that these companies are allowed to exist. But I think Google needs to be broken up. Amazon needs to be broken up. Microsoft needs to be broken up. Apple, I think, is in a different category, but they, we need to, they need to be looked at. There's too much power concentrated in too many places. Right. And we're discovering power over the culture. How do we talk to each other? Well, the newspaper industry is dying. Dead. Uh, it turns out social media is how we talk to each other now. And these guys have a complete stranglehold on the way we convert. In your Guardian column, which I, I do, we are going to put a link up to that at richardhelpy.com. It's a catchy title. And I know if, even if you didn't write it, I'd take credit for it. It's really good. <laughs> uh, liberals want to blame right-wing misinformation for our problems, period. Get real, period. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you you being mentioned of debunking and shushing and censoring all well, tools for the same end you you made mention but of de debunking is what i do that's that's what that's what people like me do you know we make we we use reason we make yes. arguments i mean that's my whole life if I didn't believe in the power of argument, I wouldn't have done what I've done. You know, I, I started my own magazine. I, I studied and studied. I write and write and write. The whole point of everything I've done in life is to persuade people to, to try to convey information. If I thought that the way you do this is by pressing the mute button, you know, build a monopoly and then and then use your monopoly to force people to shut up. That is so contrary to anything that people like me believe in. Look, I'm more than 100 percent with you on that. To me, it's more dialogue, more facts. And so I, like I read the Georgia SB 202 and I read H.R. 1. Okay, which John Sarbanes. Wow, you are way ahead of me on this. Yeah, I'm nerdy like that. Okay, I, what can I tell you? <laughs> and then I started seeing the reports come out, and I go, "Well, that's patently false." Remember, and it reminds me of the uh, Maxwell Smart School of Logic. <laughs> well, you can't give a person water in line. Uh, actually, you can. Okay, it's just like every other. All right. Well, would you believe uh, absentee ballots are going to be restricted? Well, they're actually not. Okay, well, would you believe, and it goes on, the narrative changes until people are exhausted, and then there's another breaking news story. Are you familiar with the work of Mr. Matt Taibbi? I, Matt was on my show. Matt, I believe, is a fantastic writer. I wish more people would listen to Matt Taibbi and read his writings. And like yourself, you didn't talk about this much, but my sense, and I know for sure from Matt that the, his friends on the left, when he broke liberal doctrine, they went a little berserk on him. I don't know what it is, but that did happen to me. And um, I was surprised by that uh, because I thought that what I was saying in The Guardian was like, uh, I'm just reminding my fellow liberals of the way we have always been, who we are. Mm-hmm what we stand for, you know, the free speech, First Amendment, that is central to us. And uh, I put that up on, uh, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, and I was astonished at how much pushback I got and how uh, how strongly my uh, my erstwhile friends <laughs> disliked what I was saying. I mean, really surprised because uh, this seemed to me like I was making, well, 
it seemed like a straightforward no-brainer argument to me. And instead, I didn't have too many people deny that this is happening. I thought that's what people would say. It's like, no way, Frank, you, you, you've, you've lost it. This is not taking place. There is no censorship regime. Instead, people are saying, basically, we've got the power. We should use it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, had, I, I just couldn't believe that. I had a gentleman on my show uh, named Stuart Taylor as a group called Princetonians for Free Speech and going at the speech codes on campus and getting support because it's that is an area that got out of control. Mm-hmm. And it's not to me a big leap. If someone says, well, you know what, if we can control what you can say on a college campus, then why not? We've got these tools. We can control what's said on Facebook and Twitter and, and the like. The a legitimate argument about deliberate misinformation and disinformation. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's where this all comes from. It's a, it's an 80th ripple of Russiagate. And and that's that's sort of one of the things that, that annoys me about this, because I can see the same impulse in it, which is, I mean, they're right. The Russians did buy a lot of uh, misleading ads on Facebook. Yes, yeah, but it's, they, if you look at the but, what was spent, I know, I know, I know. It's very, it's, it's infinitesimal. But here's, here's the thing, Rich. Our entire culture is based on stuff like that. Remember, my first book was about the advertising industry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to tell you, they mislead people constantly. It's what they do. Or you look at Hollywood, you know, which that's how we get our, our historical information. It's not by reading books like mine. It's by watching movies. And it's like, that's not really what happened in World War II. You know what they say <laughs> in these movies? That's not really what happened. No, it's 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 not. And this is why I think that and I'm an eternal optimist, I'll tell you that, that I look at these platforms and it lets a a person like me uh, read legislation, invite a guest like you to come on and we can talk about real things. And I've put forward, uh, you know, with the help of my guests, real policy solutions for some of the issues of the day. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they're frameworks. And if you ask the question, is it better than what we're getting from the people we elect, you know, that is higher to actually think about these things and come up with a solution, it's a resounding yes. I mean, I, I was just on Anthony Scaramucci's program called Mooch FM, and he said, okay, give me two policies. Uh, well, well, what did you say? And I went through healthcare and firearms. I went, I, I went through, well, healthcare, I've had, if you count me as a healthcare knowledgeable person, I've had, we've had six healthcare knowledgeable people. We all agree. I've got one guy coming from like libertarian, another guy from public health perspective, all vectoring in. We all agree on what the solution looks like. It's not rocket science. But I, I think one of the lines in your book, you said we reformed healthcare without troubling the big pharma and private yeah. insurance. Well, that's Obamacare. It yeah. Was, you And you was, nailed uh, it. By the way, I read the Obamacare bill because that's a, a, that was part of that's my That's what job. you do. <laughs> yes. Well, I did. I had a healthcare consulting business, too. But you nailed it. And those are the two bad actors in this. And pharma is in a different category than private insurance. But the notion that you get your health care from your employer maybe made sense, maybe, to my grandfather who worked for Chrysler Corporation for 40 years. Yeah. But now you're talking about a gig economy and you're talking about employers that are really sophisticated about how to not have to give you health care. It makes zero sense. But guess what? If your employer gives you health care, you don't pay any taxes on that. And, you know, we used to have company cars. That that was a, a benefit. Why don't you see those anymore? Because 
IRS said, guess what? If you get a car from your employer, that's income. That's right. They changed the tax code back in the Yeah, 80s. exactly. In firearms, everything else that's dangerous or requires skill, you have to go through like driver's licenses. You don't go from, here's your first license, drive a semi, a pilot. You don't get your private pilot license and now you're driving a, an airliner. You know, you don't, you can't get a fireworks license and, and unless you show you know how to operate them and how to store them. You know, medical practice the same way. But with firearms, you can take an 18-year-old in a lot of states, walk into a gun store, walk out with a semi-automatic rifle and a thousand rounds. First time they ever bought a gun. Now, can we all agree that's just like crazy? We don't want to do that. Tom, let's jump to some, uh, I got some odds and ends, and I, I'm going to ask you to riff a little bit. You get a call today from the Republican Party, and they say, tell us what to do. What do you tell them? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. The uh, Republicans are fascinating because all my life, that's been the party of big business, big money. And all of a sudden here, they aren't anymore. Uh, and they don't know what to do. They're lost. Uh, they're casting about trying to figure out their new purpose. Yeah, so they're coming to you and saying, hey, we're casting about we're lost. Give yeah. it three bullet points. Do A, B, and C. What do you do? I think if Trump had won, had run on universal health care in 2020, he would have won. <laughs> I think they should okay. become the party of universal health care. I mean, look, follow their voters. Universal health care, strong unions, and, you know, uh, stop trying to, uh, they, you know, they should completely drop all of their voter suppression stuff and do the opposite. Try to get everybody to vote. The Democrats. We've got a really old guy in office. We've got some majorities. What do we do? Democrats, it's much simpler. So what I said about the Republicans, that's never going to happen ever in a million years. <laughs> but with the Democrats, I actually they could reform the Democratic Party really easily. And that is, you know, commission a inside the you know a party commission to look into what where they went wrong. What the hell happened? Do it, you know, study their own history, uh, uh, investigate how they went wrong and how they're going to remedy it, how they're going to rebuild their bridges with the, the people that you and I grew up among uh, and, and how they're going to become the majority party of Franklin Roosevelt again, because it's it, it, it wouldn't be that hard to do. But they would have to kiss all that Wall Street money goodbye. You know, that would have to go. But uh, uh, and all that big pharma money and their their great friendships with the guys. Well, that would be a thing. Valley. Yeah, guys, hey, you know, quit taking money from those people and start legislating for the common man. Yeah, exactly. And and there's, believe me, the political rewards for that are enormous. You like uh, Roosevelt's Democratic Party, you know, uh, they held the majority in, in uh, the House of Representatives until from 1930 until 1994 with only two brief interruptions. They were always the majority party in this country. That's the world you and I grew up in. Well, they can be that again. I mean, whoever captures that, you know, that sort of populist spirit, that's the that's going to be the majority party. And it's funny right now, both parties want that and they 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 talk it and they reach out to it. And both parties have this anti-populist wing also that wants to suppress voting uh, or censor conversations, you know, so they're both pulling in both directions at the same time. I wonder which one's going to do it. It's possibly neither. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and look, I'm 100 percent with you. And I've said this on uh, many occasions. A strategy that relies on turnout or a low turnout it, to me is anathema to what we need to become as a country. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly. And we've I think we've also shown too that you don't necessarily need to take big money. I mean, Trump didn't in his first run. 
because you can reach audiences. He was a media creation. He's, you know, he's people will be writing about his his victory forever. But the Hillary outraised and outspent him two to one. Yeah. Biden. uh, It was a little different this year, 2020, because Trump was obviously the incumbent. But Biden still outraised and outspent him. It wasn't quite two to one, but it was substantial. Uh, And Biden specifically outraised him from Wall Street, Silicon Valley, pharma, the commanding heights of the economy, Hollywood, the people who matter. Trump had who did Trump have in his corner? He had big oil. (laughs) He had casinos. He he had these sort of. uh, Let me ask you this time, if you had to advise the news outlets, whether it's cable or the legacy broadcasters or the former print media, what would you tell them to do? So un- unfortunately, Rich, this is a uh, this is a question that um, where any answer I would propose or any any suggestion I would propose would be by definition wrong because you talk to Matt Taibbi. This is his theory. Everybody has become Fox News. Everybody has become you know politics for entertainment, getting outraged at one another as a form of entertainment. And I hate it. And I hate what it's doing to us. I bet you have seen the Fox News effect on people you know. Oh, yeah. And how it changes their personality. And I, I, I've seen that and it, it, it's disturbing. And now MSNBC and CNN, they're doing the same thing. Precisely. Same formula. I hate it, but it's for them, by their standards, this is a winner. You know, they've got a lot more viewers now than they did a few years ago. Yeah, it's a, no, it's the outrage centers. And just like you and I find that repulsive, that I think enough people say, you know what, we know we're getting played and we need to be able to have honest reporting and like, look, what's in the bill? And that's the thing I keep asking people. Every time someone tells you dislike this or dislike that or hate this person, I hate that person. It's like, okay, stop. What's in the bill? We're about to look at an infrastructure bill. We're going to be talking to Professor Rick Geddes from Cornell University, who's going to break down what's in the bill. The president needs to say what's in it that's not really infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Tom, you've been a great guest, and I apologize that we've gone over. I could hope that you'll agree to come back at some time. Oh, absolutely. I'd be I'd be glad to. That's great. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that we perhaps should have discussed, or is there any closing thoughts that you have? Well, not really. I think this was this is one, a, a wonderful conversation, and I really like the sort of your the core idea of your show, which is that ultimately we have to live with each other. This is a democracy, and we have to get along with one another. And you know, like I want to just re- echo a, a statement that you made at the very start of the show. This country is filled with fundamentally decent people, and that's the core value of populism is that we like the people. I I took my title, the people know, from a famous book from the 30s by a guy called Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg, another sh- great Chicagoan, he wrote something called The People Yes. Hmm. And it's a celebration of the American vernacular and of ordinary Americans and how we talk to each other. And it's a very 1930s thing to celebrate ordinary Americans. And I feel like nowadays we are doing the opposite in this country. We are denouncing ordinary Americans. Yes. We think that they're diseased in some way and that they're psychologically, um, you know, that there's some pathology has got them. And I just want to say, I still believe in the people. Yes. I still believe in ordinary Americans. And I think that's very close to who we are when we can actually talk to each other in 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 a normal way, not screaming and not, not social media and that sort of thing. And when look at, I think your historical perspective is a great step in that direction. Uh, We talk about the 
you know, deliberate attempt to divide us black versus white and that same model being applied. Oh, yeah. The, the, the politically, it's just crazy what's going on now. And I know you said that your book, The People Know, is your last political book. I hope you mean it's your most recent because I think you've got a lot of gas in your tank. And I, I know I would sure love to hear more from you. And, I, and I'm sure our readers will, too. All right. Thanks a lot, Rich. This is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge, where we talk about the issues of the day, the opportunities of the moment, and the policy solutions that can help us address them. We've been with our guest, Thomas Frank. So long. Till next time. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Please subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for The Common Bridge and subscribe.